ACAST powers the world's best podcasts. Here's a show that we recommend. When we feel better, we do better. That simple message is what Feel Better with Tara Styles is all about. We share informative, inspiring, and healing conversations with respected leaders whose work embodies the action of making our world a better place. We also share simple practices based in meditation, tai chi, and gentle yoga that are a relief to breathe along with, whether you have time to stretch out on the ground or you're busy getting ready for your day. Settle in and enjoy learning something new that will surely support your well-being, inspire your creativity, and help you feel a whole lot better. Acast helps creators launch, grow, and monetize their podcasts everywhere. Acast.com. The sheriff said, you cannot arrest your way out of this problem. We have to have training and education. Welcome to Foreign Policy. I'm David Rothkopf, CEO and editor, and this is the Editor's Roundtable. Today, I'm joined by FP contributor Rosa Brooks, senior Future of War fellow at New America Foundation and professor at Georgetown University. Also with us is another FP columnist, Corey Shockey, a research fellow at the Hoover Institution, where she focuses on military history. Finally, we have Tom Ricks with us, a senior advisor on national security at the New America Foundation and a longtime contributing editor here at Foreign Policy. Recently, in our tiny podcast studio, high above Washington's DuPont Circle, we had the following conversation. Tom, who in America would you least like to have dinner with? It's funny how quickly I can answer that question. John Kerry. Everything about him just says, no, this is not somebody I would enjoy being around. Well, let me ask a question. Who would you most like to have dinner with? Because I just want to compare it with something, because you might say... Because my wife might listen to this. No, she won't listen. Oh, okay. So we've established that the person is female. Does it have to be someone in the foreign policy world, or can it be anyone in Anybody. America? You can have anybody dinner with America. anybody in America. Actually, you know who really intrigues me is the managing editor of The New Yorker, Sylvia Killingsworth. She's so young, but seems so competent at the job. It's a well-run magazine. I'm just very impressed by that. I mean, I, th- I think she's like 29 or 30 or something. Nerds. Nerds. And she spends she has enormous <laughs> amounts of time to to tweet about, like, ships that she sees out her office window going up and down the Hudson. Oh, my God. Corey, I'm, we're going to follow this through, and then we're going to talk about something else. The United States of America, who would you like to have dinner with? Mike Matheny, the manager of the St. Louis Cardinals, who's one of the finest strategists. He plays a weak hand extremely well. And we do that. <laughs> so too are you little. with this question? So we do that too little in American foreign policy. Oh, and so you would consider and recruiting him into the foreign policy establishment? Absolutely, we need more people who actually can look at what are our strengths, what are our weaknesses, how do we play to our strengths and shield our weaknesses? We do that too little in American foreign policy. Well, if that's the tr- case, then the next president of the United States should be Bill Belichick. But who's the person you'd least like to have dinner with in the United States? Bill Belichick. Ooh. (laughs) This may be the end of this podcast and a beautiful relationship. (laughs) He is American power in the caricature 
of, uh, of those we have disappointed in the world. Hugely powerful, diabolical, won't play by the oh rules. Oh, my God. <laughs> this, is, this cannot stand. Here is a guy who year in and year out takes a bunch of people, figures out what they're good at, makes them better than everybody else by tapping into their skills, remains adroit, does his homework, and everybody resents him for being more successful. He's not the parody of America. He's the greatness of America. Please, everybody, send me by PayPal $5 for goading David that way. This actually reminds me of a theory I have, that one of the really bad influences on American foreign policy is sports analogies, and especially football analogies, because it tends to see the competition is occurring on a delineated area and the people are just up in the stands. They've got nothing to do with it. It's an artificial separation, and it's an analogy that actually has really hurt Americans thinking about the use of power overseas. Give, give me a couple of the sports analogies you really hate. We're just out, out to play the, play the game, and uh, I'm seeing the ball really well every day. And, um, you know, that, well, that's sort of more... more singles and doubles, singles and doubles. That's what foreign <laughs> policy is all about. There you go. Yeah, that's a good one. In football, it's just five yards in a cloud of dust. We're just grinding it out every day. The ground game's going real well. It's just a bad way to think about farm We've got to move the ball a little bit further down the field. Mm-hmm. You've got to try a forehand lob. No, there's no <laughs> Let's tennis. not leave out the Hail Mary pass, Hail Mary pass, which we should all be worried about in the last year of the Obama administration. Mm-hmm. Interesting. Very, very interesting. Rosa. Who would you least like to have dinner well, with David, in the United uh, States? I was going to say Donald Trump, but uh, just a moment ago, I noticed that you had seized a small jar of mustard and were, were fondling. <laughs> and I don't know why there is a jar of mustard in this studio, and I don't know why you are playing with it. But I don't think I'd want to have dinner with you if that's... If that's but, but, oh, my God. <laughs> nothing but you know, nuts, you know, Dr. Rosa, first of all, first of all... Hey, you know, people, I did not I bring the mustard. I don't know how this got here. <laughs> I do think somebody was sending us a message that we needed we to, to spice things, spice up, a things bit, up a little bit. Yeah. And this thing about not having a meal with me, I think it's a, like a flashback. Okay, Tom. Because <laughs> this whole podcast came out of a lunch that you and I had. That's, that's a good point. That's a good point. Okay, okay. I, but I enjoy uh, having lunch with uh, David. Okay, other than me, other, who would nobody, you least likely? David, I have... Least I have, likely. Least likely. I have likely. two jobs, two kids, a husband, and a puppy. I, I want to have dinner by myself oh. <laughs> with a book, a really good book. <laughs> that's fantastic. That's my fantasy. To be alone. Dinner that somebody else cooked that I eat by myself with a really good book. That's really sad. I know it. We should move on to a different topic. We, we really we really should because yeah. I'm personally misting up. Wait, I want to hear your answer to the question. Oh, yeah. Oh, I have no idea. I've, I'm, I'm not answering. Um, <laughs> Tom. Uh, Tom. Editor's prerogative. Tom, prior to the beginning of the podcast, we had a little conversation about the idea of endless war. That the United States is currently bogged down in endless war, that Afghanistan is uh, the longest war of the modern era, that it doesn't look like we're going to get out of there anytime soon. We thought we were out of Iraq. Just when we thought we were out, we're back. Doesn't look like it's going to end anytime soon. Is this something new? Is it something we should be troubled about? How do you look at it? I, I begin by asking just what is it doing to our country? What does it mean? to be in a never-ending war. I'm thinking about this a little bit because that's the background that George Orwell uses in the novel 1984. There's sort of this background of warfare going on and missiles landing in the background. He never really explains it. And sometimes there's one side fighting another side. Then with that explanation, 
those people become alive and they start fighting a third party. Uh, and it kind of feels a bit like today's foreign policy situation. What does it do to the country? I don't know. I wonder whether we've ever been here before. I suspect we have in a little bit in the wars against the Indians, uh, which really lasted a couple hundred years, but for the United States as a nation, but let's 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 drill down, because I think you bring up a really interesting. Is that a sports metaphor, or is that an oil metaphor? Drilling down, it's yeah. a dental metaphor. It's a dental. Oh yeah, my yeah. God, I'm um, afraid of that. That's it's, my fear. It's it's but but let's let's explore this a little bit further because the 1984 imagery is extremely evocative. And suggests, I think, in the context of 1984, that the wars are going on um, almost without regard for their merits because they serve some political or economic purpose. And as I look back at the United States since the end of the Second World War, you know, the, the United States was in a depression before the Second World War. It was entering the war and building up the machinery that really got the U.S. out of the recession. So when the war ended... The people who were in charge of the defense establishment said, we can't wind this establishment down. It's too big. It would be too damaging to our economy. And the Cold War took place then, 45 years, 46 years, the Cold War went on. And it allowed that military-industrial complex to keep humming along and be a pillar of the U.S. economy. And then at the end of that period, we thought, okay, well, we don't need this anymore. Maybe we could have a discussion about it. And that caused a lot of people to be crazy. And then this weird thing happened. We were attacked. We were attacked by a group that at the time of the attack had 100 people living in caves, according to the Central Intelligence Agency. And yet, somehow, for some reason, the United States decided to draw the conclusion that this was exactly identical to the threat posed by the former Soviet Union or Germany, a global existential threat that required us to actually ramp up our defense complex. And, you know, when you study it from that context, you say, maybe there is another game going on here. I'm not a conspiracy theorist, but I, I, I do believe that there is a big apparatus in the United States, which a huge self-interest in finding enemies big enough to enable us to support fighting wars, um, ideally wars that don't end. So from an economic perspective, maybe endless war is a big win-win for the people who really count in Washington. Can I um, jump on the point about the parallel to the Indian Wars? Because I think it actually connects what Tom was saying and what you were saying, David. The Indian Wars were a 70 years long, at least, series of skirmishes in which most of the Indian tribes' strategies, especially on the plains, were to provoke a sense of terror. And so it's actually kind of an interesting parallel to, to al-Qaeda and the threats that we have been facing since September 11th, actually before September 11th, but we started doing something about it. So their, their impulse wasn't actually to just protect their homeland and keep their wives and children from being killed by American marauders? My take on it is that we were continuously violating treaties in which we moved more and more into their space. And for most of the Plains Indians, their strategies, because, because we made coexistence impossible, they were looking for big striking examples that would deter people from moving into the area. The parallel, though, that I was trying to get to is 
the way that we reacted to the Indian Wars was to try and isolate and respond to the incidents without overreacting, that is, without changing the nature of the rest of American society. And that's where I think the September 11th example um, is contrary, right? Because it could turn out that al-Qaeda created the biggest diversion of American strategic effort of anyone ever by the way we reacted to it and continue to react to it. It is, I just want to posit a notion to which you can respond. The September 11th attacks were carried out by Native Americans. This is the new 9-11 conspiracy theory. Is that? He is a conspiracist. <laughs> okay, go on, David. Okay. I'm totally ready. Uh, you're ready. Okay. Yeah. So the September 11 attacks were one of the most successful military gambits of the past hundred years because the objective was to provoke the United States into doing things that would strengthen al-Qaeda, strengthen Islamists, strengthen extremists, cause the U.S. to deplete their assets, cause us to focus on things that were not the foundations of our strength, focus away from what we should be focusing on, in other words. And as a result, they didn't just achieve the objectives imagined by Osama bin Laden. They fantastically exceeded those objectives. And they, they helped China and Vladimir Putin and a whole bunch of other people out in the process. Absolutely. No, I think that that's absolutely right. I, I think that we will we will spend the next hundred years wondering why we couldn't stop ourselves from overreacting so dramatically uh, in, in terms of entangling ourselves in such a lengthy and expensive and distracting series of military engagements. And I'm sure that for much of the last 15 years, uh, uh, many leaders around the world who are not U.S. Uh, allies have been happily rubbing their hands and saying, this is so much fun to watch the United States get so bent out of shape and so confused, in, particularly in the Middle East. Um, I want to go back, though, to to the original set of questions you asked, though, David, just are we in an endless war? Is this new? Does it matter? Uh, I think the answers, respectively, to those three questions are yes, no, and yes. Uh, I'd say, yeah, we're in an endless war. Uh, and and this, is, this is something that I write a lot about. And in fact, uh, I, those of you listening to us, we here at Foreign Policy do not just yap. We occasionally write things down. Um, and <laughs> Although we're moving to an all-yapping format. We're moving to an all-yapping platform. Yeah. Um, but, but uh, you know, yeah, I think we're, we're in, in, in an... I think the... As the military puts it, we're in an era of persistent conflict. It's not going to end anytime soon. There's no reason it should end, particularly as the state becomes further destabilized and uh, a variety of different forms of power continue to become simultaneously more diffuse and democratized in certain ways and more concentrated in other ways. We're not going to suddenly see peace breaking out all over. Uh, That said, I, I, I would go further than Tom and say not only is this historically have continuities with earlier moments in American history, such as the Indian Wars. But the United States has been engaged in armed conflict of one sort or another almost continuously since the birth of the nation. And we edit out all of these small wars. We say, oh, well, they're small. They don't count. 
Uh, we've been able to ignore them because we've, for the most of our history, with really the exception of World Wars One, Two, and Vietnam and Korea, Korean War eras, we've had a small and highly professionalized military that the rest of us didn't have to think about very much. So we could simultaneously be engaged in almost continuous conflict, and most Americans didn't have to think about it. And, and I, I do, anyone who's interested in this, I want to recommend a fantastic book by a uh, legal historian named Mary Dudziak, uh, who teaches at Emory. Uh, who has a book called Wartime, talking about the ways in which warfare has been a really a continuous facet of, of American history, and it's a great book. But then the final question, though, is does it matter? And I'm going to say, yes, it does. And it matters differently now than it has in different moments, because you could think about—now I'm going to be a little bit of a, a law professor wonk here—you know, you could think about conflict and warfare on the functional dimension. Do we have do we have people using military force somewhere? Well, we've had that for most of our history, sometimes larger scale, sometimes smaller scale. So there's nothing new about that endless war. But at, at certain moments in time, we choose to attach a different kind of legal and political significance to it. Uh, and after 9-11, the decision with such an, with such an inchoate, hard-to-define enemy to define the our efforts to militarily respond to a terrorist group, to define that as a war on terrorism, that has had enormous consequences and is going to continue to have enormous consequences, which don't really have anything much to do with the level of force we are using or the number of Americans at risk, but that have to do with a set of political decisions to put things into one legal category rather than another. Right. And another component of this, uh, Tom, is that we made the calculus that if we were organizing ourselves you know, for this war on terror, then a terrorist attack was a, a defeat. It was the threat we were worried against. And so any place that might be a source from which a terrorist attack could emanate would then be seen as a potential battle zone. This leads you into uh, looking at everywhere in the world as a threat, and, and it actually increases the likelihood that there'll always be something to be worried about. This is what Andy Krapanevich famously called the disaggregation of your enemies. If you make everybody potentially an enemy, everywhere is potentially a combat zone, and you are dispersing your resources everywhere simultaneously. Even America can only... Well, can you see zone. any scenario where the next president of the United States does not leave office with troops in either Afghanistan or Iraq or both? Honestly, I can't. Uh, I think the next American president is going to find that the cumulative weight of decisions over the previous 16 to 20 years are going to really limit her or perhaps his choices. But you know, David, or I should say Colonel Mustard, <laughs> oh, Jesus in the studio with the microphone. Oh, he threw out the mustard. Your questions again and again point to why is it an endless war? And I don't have good answers to that. I have a couple of suspicions. The mistakes primarily have been made by civilian leaders, strategic mistakes. And that's a hit on Bush for the way he approached Afghanistan. I think he had to invade Afghanistan for the way they handled it. It's a hit on Bush again for invading Iraq. It's a hit on Obama and Biden for their mishandling of Iraq. And it's a hit on the U.S. military for what I think has become ingrained, pervasive, risk-averse behaviors. And what they do is do enough to keep us stuck, 
but not enough to resolve anything. We have a military that is very happy to bat 250, if you want to get back to the sports analogy. Well, I thought we were moving away from the sports analogy. I hate football analogies. I like, I like baseball analogies. Oh, I see. I agree with everything Tom just said. McChrystal once... Uh, told me that when he became commander in Afghanistan, he would go around and ask all of the commanders, what would you do if you couldn't go home until we won? As a way to kind of shake their consciousness into the fact that that they had shifted their perspective to just not letting things get too much worse on my watch. But I would sharpen the spear a little bit by saying I think we make two mistakes that are making this war- these wars endless. The first is failing to identify a clear political objective for the end state that military force is supposed to achieve for us. And second, not adequately resourcing it. Uh, because a lot of what I think we especially in Iraq, saw, is uh, an unwillingness to put the adequate number of troops or political attention or political involvement with Iraqis and to instead say it'll just take longer. And that, too, plays into this notion that, you know, the time of ending is the political objective instead of what are we trying to achieve and can military force do it and how much will it take? And if you're not willing to do that, don't touch the problem. Well, let me me, me ask a question that follows up on that, because a related mistake to the ones you've enumerated, the ones Tom's enumerated, was defining the threat posed by terrorism as a military threat in the first place. And the problem is that in so doing, you then use the tools of war to fight this thing, but you can't use all of them, and you can never win uh, because the threat always remains because it's not a military threat. It's a political and social threat. Right. If you had defined it as a police, intelligence, and homeland security threat— and said, these kind of people are going to be out there all around the world. Let's keep our eye on them. Let's work with other people to defeat them. And let's make sure they don't come here. And let's improve governance in the places that are spawning them. Well, if we can. But the point is, we're really, really, you know, as bad as we are at defeating terrorists, we are worse at improving governance in these places. I see you the argument. Um, so, But I want to disagree a little bit, uh, or, or at least— Well, should we be fighting a war against terrorists? That I'm, I'm not going to—I'm going to ignore that question for the moment. Um I don't think our metric for success uh, ought to be whether we still have troops in place X or place Y 20 years from now or five years from now. Um, I think we have troops, as we've we've discussed in previous podcasts, we have troops in Korea, we have troops in Germany. Um, I'm perfectly comfortable having troops in lots of places. I'm actually perfectly comfortable having troops who sometimes have to use their weapons in lots of places. I think that's a completely separate question from how we define our priorities, what we tell the American people about threats and opportunities and so forth. I think um, those are interesting and important distinctions. But I also think, though, to be fair, and I, I don't want to give the Obama administration too much credit But yes, you want to have a strategy, but maybe the strategy is in Afghanistan. We can't fix it. We can't leave it. Let's keep just enough troops there to keep it from getting catastrophically awful again. And we might need to do that for the next 30 years. And maybe that's okay. So I'm not sure uh, this—I'll come back to your question about terrorism, David— 
that we, if, if our understanding of if you have American troops in a place, then you either have to win or you have to lose or you have to just go away. Um, that's not the universe of possibilities, right? The university of possibilities might be there's no such thing as winning in these very complex, mixed military, political, economic challenges that sometimes maybe the best you can do is to contain and keep things from getting worse, and the military is one of several tools to do that. I'm not actually sure that the Obama administration, in fact, has been sitting there consistently for the last seven years saying, hey, this is our strategy. I think their strategy, in fact, uh, has, has changed. But but I don't think there's anything inherently wrong with saying we already do have troops deployed in many countries around the world. They may or may not end up using force. But here's where I think the more difficult challenge is and, and where there is, frankly, much more at stake than how many troops were doing exactly what. We can and have at many moments in our history had troops engaged in conflict, episodic, lower-level forms of conflict. Uh, without retooling our entire legal and political system uh, to to respond to that particular conflict. After 9-11, however, in, in many ways, which I think we are only beginning to feel, uh, we really did retool much about our, our institutions, our politics, and our law yeah, uh, to reflect the conflict against terror. We're getting away from the core point that Tom raised. I think those are useful and insights. But the question of, of endless war is, at its heart, is there a way to end it? I don't think that is the question. Well, I, I okay, think that's, that's the wrong the, question. Well, you, I think the question is how you manage it. I think, no, I think no, the question no. is what well, you let I, it do I, to I know your you society. Said that. I, I, know, I, I know you said that, but I'm, <laughs> I'm saying something different. I'm saying the way to end this war is to embrace the approach you just took. The way to end this war is to say you don't need to have an end to war. The way to have... No. Yes, yes, it is. Because I th- what I'm saying. What Rosen is describing is not the American war on the Indians. It's the war on drugs. She's saying if we could make the war on terror look like the war on drugs, that would be a success. And I think about this because in my local paper here in Maine, there's an article about the local heroin ap- epidemic. And they quoted the sheriff in a way that made me fall out of my chair. The sheriff said, you cannot arrest your way out of this this problem. (sighs) We have have to have training and education. But that's true. And and then he went on and said, everybody in their family knows who the addicts are, but they're not talking to us. He basically described an insurgency situation. But it's not an insurgency situation. We've criminalized something. And in criminalizing it, we've created the hugest possible disincentive for people to talk about solving the problem. I think you guys yeah. are actually agreeing. We are, but we the are. point is the war on drugs has been a failure. I disassociate myself from the war on drugs. Okay, but, but, <laughs> but the point is you're saying, you know, we can just go on and keep fighting, and there's a, mo- there's a way to do this where it's not endless war. And the analogy with Germany and Korea and Japan and Guam and a bunch of other places where we have— is, 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 is not a good analogy because we're not fighting in those places. But I'm not sure you agree with your own point here, David, because, because policing also sometimes involves violence, right? And policing in response to a global problem in which the criminals use military force is sometimes going to involve military tools, which is to say that sometimes we can't send the NYPD into Yemen or whatever it may be. Well, actually, there is no global threat posed by terrorists that uses military tools. When I say global threat, I don't mean threat to the globe. I mean threat that is not confined to within the borders of this country or any one country. The 
episodic use of people employed by the United States military using force necessarily turns things into something we have to legally define as a war. I think um, that's absolutely true. That's episodic use of force. And the distinction is huge because th there was a rational response to 9-11. The rational response is, who are the bad guys? Go hit them. We've identified a threat. What do we have to do to eliminate the future threat? Identify potential perpetrators. Track them using intelligence. Stop them using police. Harden our assets working with the private sector uh, who own most of those assets in order to stop this from happening again. And should any threat ever rise to an acute level again, we will go in and smack it. And that is a counter-terror strategy that makes sense. Right. And what we right. did was we went off and said, no, there's something more. We have to engage them on the ground, eradicate them, which you can't do. Um, contain them, which you can't do. Change uh, their cultures out of the barrel of a gun, which you can't do. Yeah, and and we defined political objectives that were extraordinarily difficult and sophisticated to attain, and then tried to attain them by by simple levers. Right, but I mean, really, we talk about this stuff, and it's very reverent, and we've actually had this conversation a little bit before in the podcast, but we talk so reverentially about, um, you know, the post 9-11 era and our response and, and you know, the patriotic elements and, and, and it becomes very, very hard to criticize. But I think it will go down in history, not only that Osama bin Laden had one of the great military successes of recent memory against the United States, but the United States response was catastrophically wrong up and down the board in conceiving yeah. the problem and responding to the problem and responding to secondary problems that were emerged from the problem and in casting the thing uh, in a, in a longer-term perspective. And I think Barack Obama's mistake was that he came in and said, I want to change things, and didn't, and essentially said, I'm going to keep playing this game. Yeah. Well, I think, you know, it's it's interesting. There's a, a line. I was going to say it's a famous line, but then I knew you were going to accuse me of being a nerd, David. So I'll just say it's a line that is famous to nerds um, from the uh, uh, sociologist and historian uh, Charles Tilley talking about the relationship between state formation and war making and, and militaries. He says, war made the state and the state makes war. And I've always thought that that's true, not only in the literal sense by which Tilly meant it, which is that European states at least literally evolved out of the military organizations, the ever more elaborate military organizations that had to be created to win victories as time went on during European history, but also in a, in a sort of figurative sense that the state quote-unquote, makes war because it is the state that legally defines what counts as a war and what doesn't count as a war. When the state in our case, the United States circa 2011, for instance, decides to define certain types of cyber attacks as war. Uh, well, I think then that, that, that triggers a set of consequences that's, that's different than if we define it as crime. For well, there's, a, there's another interesting yeah. component of that, so. um, and that is that there are a bunch of advanced countries that I think could hardly be defined as anything other than post-war countries. 
countries where war is not a central element of their raison d'etre. It's not something which they do as their core business. Uh, and interestingly, there are countries moving to, you know, the British are downsizing their army. They're going, it's going it's to be, as we've said before, smaller in number of people than the New York City Police Department. The, you know, Germany doesn't use its military um, very often, and it certainly doesn't use it in the way that we do. Japan is rethinking it, but it's gone a long time without being a country that you know engaged militarily elsewhere in the world. There are loads and loads of small countries that never use their military or don't even have much of a military. Um, actually, the outliers are the ones that have them and use them. Yes, that's true. But one of the things that most of the countries that you just described have in common is that they're American allies. So we have allowed to accrue to us over time more and more responsibility for other people's safety in a way that that has changed the burden-sharing dynamic and which I think is actually changing in the reverse now when countries that begin to feel greater military threats from Russia, from the Islamic State – also find themselves less able to rely on the United States well, nothing, to come up with solutions. No, I, it, right, but it gets back to the point that we were talking about before. Nothing has been more costly to the United States than our arrogance. If we say we will set all the rules, we will never report to another general, we will never subordinate our troops to somebody else's troops, then everybody else says, okay, if that's the way you're playing this game, we're playing a secondary role, you're playing the leading role, we're going to do less. We've paid the price of that. Now, is that in our national interest? No, it's not. Is that in the interests of the military-industrial complex in the United States that they can sell those people certain kinds of weapons and ensure that we are the ones who've got to be continuing to write the checks? Yes, it is. In defense of the Pentagon, can I say that there are now British generals uh, in command positions in the First Armored Division and in other. So the military is actually doing a better job of this than the rest of the government of trying to rebalance how we think about this sharing Right, equation. but as you yeah. would know better than anybody, being in a command position doesn't mean being in charge, right? You know, they're <laughs> in the chain of Well, command. let me ask a hypothetical question for, for all three of you. Um, back in 2004, during the uh, presidential election campaign, John Kerry made a comment to the effect of, look, we need to see terrorism as sort of like prostitution or other forms of crimes. You can't completely get rid of it, but you can try to keep it at a manageable level. And he, you know, was roundly pilloried for saying that, for not taking terrorism seriously enough, and we need a war on terror, et cetera, et cetera. Question, is America ready would it be possible to imagine the next president, whoever that might be, saying, folks, no, we haven't defeated and eliminated terrorism from the face of the earth, but it's time to stop calling it a war. That's a stupid way to think about it. We may sometimes need to use force against specific groups uh, in specific places, but this is fundamentally a political and economic problem with an occasional military and policing component, and I'm not going to call it a war anymore. Is, do, is America ready for that? America is not ready for it because the American government is not ready for it. I think the single best book ever written on... American foreign policy, and especially the use of power abroad, is Robert Comer's monograph on the Americans of Vietnam called Bureaucracy Does Its Thing. And his core point was you can say whatever you want, but the bureaucracy and the military will do what it's built to do, oriented to do, what it knows how to do, not what it should do. And so I think no matter what rhetoric comes out of the White House, what's the product that's going to come out of the Pentagon is what the Pentagon is built to do. So two things. Shorter version of 
of that book is the graffiti I once saw in London, no matter who you vote for, the government always gets in. And that is true, right? What the Pentagon does is figure out how to, how to manage these problems. But I also think it is possible, we may not be to that point yet, but the longer the United States goes without a major terrorist attack in this country, the more we are, the pendulum is swinging back to reconsideration of these things. So yeah, I can see that possible. I think the problem with Kerry's statement wasn't its validity, it was both its timing and its messenger. Do you think, Rosa? You think it would, th- if Justin Trudeau had, <laughs> it would have been, no. <laughs> All right, never mind. I'm do referring you, back to a previous podcast. Do you Best think that these wars will end during the next administration? No, I don't. Um, I think I think the United States and the world would be better off if the next president said, that's it. The struggle is not over, but it is stupid to call this a war because that's not what it is, and that's really distorting in a zillion different ways. Um, But I think it's uh, unfortunately extremely unlikely to happen. Corey? I do not think the wars will end uh, in the term of the next president because I think our credibility, our our strategic atrophy is so well recognized that challenges will continue and, and it'll take a long time for us to dig ourselves out of this hole. Tom, given that given that you don't think they'll end, Rosa doesn't think they'll end, Corey doesn't think they'll end, do you think they'll expand during the next president? I don't, partly because I think not only are we built for endless war, we're built for mediocre endless war, for this sort of uh, low-level, humma-humma, do your rotation and get out. Uh, and it goes to what Corey was saying about McChrystal's conversation with commanders, you know, when, what, it, what they said back to him was, geez, if we were actually had to stay here until this was solved, or we'd be doing 100 things differently every day. Uh, the lack of seriousness is one reason this thing's going to last so long. Do you agree? Yes. Corey? Yeah, I agree. I think, but um, as I know Tom does, it is not simply a military problem. That is also our political reflex. Mediocre continuity. This is the no, most no. hopeless conversation I've had in a long time. <laughs> well, I can make it worse because I don't think it's our political reflex. I think it's our reflex as human beings. We seek stability, stasis. We think it gives us a sense of control. It actually saps us of our options and our meaning of for life. We don't take risks. We don't change things. We don't ask fundamental questions. And to take it, you know, and even, you know, that, that's semi-sarcastic. Actually, it's not. I mean that completely. But to, to take it you know, a step further, you know, part of the problem is an even deeper problem. And I'm going to like zoom off to the metaphysical now, but I, but I just – I want to – Let me to interrupt really quickly to state for our listeners that David is wearing all black and probably <laughs> has a copy of Nietzsche in his pocket. Um, no, not Nietzsche. Um, not good for the Jews. But um, the uh, – but let me – you know, just sort of go, go, go really to a different level of this conversation. Part of the reality of endless war is, of course, 
um, the reality of a permanent giant military establishment. And part of the way you get to a giant, big, permanent military establishment is you have a kind of a national acceptance that having such a thing is a good and necessary thing. And part of the way you get to national acceptance that this is a good and necessary thing uh, and also make it a functioning thing is that you say that going off and fighting wars is patriotic and glorious. And, of course, this has been used by every nation since the dawn of time. And it's patently untrue. It is a myth. It is a myth like the way you get meaning in life is from your job, okay, which is a myth created David, so that I, people— I get every ounce of meaning in my life from writing columns for foreign policy. Are you trying to say that that's an illusion? It is an illusion because what's happening is you're getting meaning. You know, it's like people go to the office, they get paid a salary, they do a bunch of work that they wouldn't otherwise want to do in order to get that salary. Why does that happen? It happens so that the person who owns the company can make much more money than they do and exploit them. And the, instead of saying to them, I'll give you more money or we'll split it differently, they say, no, this gives meaning to your life. And so, and but but on the military front, I want to get to the military front. We keep selling the idea that the military are these kind of sacrosanct gods, and that when go, the going off and fighting in Afghanistan is a glorious thing to do for your country. And frankly, if you go off and fight in an endless war where there is no result, you are a schmuck who is being used by your country. So I have now figured out what book David is actually carrying with him, and it's a compendium of British World War I poetry. That <laughs> military sacrifice is completely meaningless. No, it's not completely meaningless. There are times when you're fighting a meaningful war where it has some meaning. If somebody's threatening your family or your way of life or seeking to impose something on your world, then you have to defend it. But when you go off and fight in a place— where there is no benefit to society or there is no end game um, and where there hasn't been a thoughtful political discussion that is commensurate with putting those lives at risk, then you are being used. And it doesn't matter how many medals or songs or other kinds of things that we can trump up in the jingoism establishment. Those people are being exploited. The trouble is sometimes you don't know it until it's too late, right? I mean, you don't know that there is no end game until 14 years go by and there's no end game, right? That each individual group goes in thinking as they have to. I have to trust our leaders. I have to trust my commanders. I have to trust the civilian leaders. I have to trust the American public. You know, we can't, you know, this goes back to the question, oh, is the American public's general lack of information about foreign policy, is that because they're dumb and ignorant or is that because they're sensibly doing what every human needs to do, which is delegate to other people because you can't be smart on every issue all the time. You just can't. All of us delegate. All of us say, I don't know anything about economics, but Rothkopf does. I'm going to ask him what he thinks and then that's going to be what I think and so forth on whatever the issue is. So, I, you know, I think you're you're being a little a little too hard on on. People. Well, let's let Tom in at some point, but go ahead. Go no, ahead. no, no. Why do we have to let Tom in? He's, he's not here in the studio. He's on the phone. We can, we can, we can. <laughs> I've had my hand him. up for five minutes. So, <laughs> so I actually want to be the bridge to Tom because I'm going to pose a question about civil military affairs in the United States that I'd love to know his answer to. One of the things that came out of this big public opinion survey that we did at Hoover about gaps between civilians and the military is that the American public, as Rosa suggested, is is eye-poppingly ignorant about their military and what it is doing in the world. 
another thing that comes out, though, is is people have very little respect for their elected political leaders, an enormous amount of respect for the military. And so what you have seen is that the public is comfortable being ignorant on these issues because what the military says has become a proxy for for the right the the public waits to see what the military says and this appears to be changing the civil military balance that is between elite policymakers who are now distrustful of military advice and the military leadership precisely because the public gives so much trust and validity to it tom do you see the civil military balance changing i do but it's more eroding because neither side and the civilian military leadership knows how to really talk to each other in a frank and candid way as they used to. Uh, The funny thing about the American polls is they say they respect the military and don't respect the politicians. But if you look at the ratings numbers, they have an enormous amount of time to sit and listen to political debate, yet they don't listen to the military very much. The biggest complaint I hear from vets about civilians is they don't want to hear anything about what we did. How was your war? They'd say, and as soon as you start talking, their eyes glaze over. Nobody wants to hear. So on my blog lately, I've had several uh, former enlisted soldiers write about trying to make sense of their experience. And we know that one thing that increases combat trauma is if you can't make sense of your experience. So they're looking back and saying, what did I do over the last 10 years? Why did I do it? How did I do it? And it's a pretty intense conversation going on among vets that nobody else in the country seems to be listening to, which really strikes me. Right, and, and that's, the, that's the conversation I was getting to. The conversation I'm getting to is sometimes wars are not fought for noble reasons, not fought in noble ways, not fought in ways that are worth celebrating. Sometimes lives are lost, and they are just lost. And, you know, if you don't know the difference, then you don't know when to end the war. Yet all of these people nowadays I think a great have the additional idea. burden... They volunteered, so they're asking themselves, what did I volunteer for? Why did I volunteer? I asked to be part of this thing. Look, I, you know, my, my, and right, and we build that volunteer culture out there. And here's the reality. If it were me or it were my children or it were somebody that I cared about, I would want them to be skeptical. I would want them to demand to be persuaded because if they were put in a position where they could be demanded, where they could demand to be persuaded whether they were going to join or not, then it would have an influence on the decisions of leaders. And if, 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 it, if, if everybody is expected to snap to attention and go in the direction that their government points them in, then you're going to continue to fight these wars that are often fought for the wrong reasons in the wrong way in the wrong places. Okay, I disagree with that really heartily on two counts. The first is I agree with you about skepticism and being a demanding public of what our political leaders are trying to do, especially when it involves putting the lives of Americans on the line. But I do not believe the military ought to be the people asking those questions. I'm not talking about the military. I'm talking about people contemplating going into the military. I'm talking about the volunteering process. Which brings process. me to my second objection, okay. which is that most people don't volunteer for military service because they're in favor of the war. They volunteer for military service 
because it gets them opportunities to be safely in the middle class. It gets them education opportunities. It gets them um, self-discipline and self-respect well, that and a, a sense of Isn't that belonging. a heck of a situation for our country to be in, where our best job program for poor, uneducated people is to but, put them into the military? They are not. No, that's, that's, yeah, that's, that's, that's an anachronistic yeah. understanding of the military. But, but, people, yeah, people all three of us have joined the military these days. But, but I also think that plenty of people also join. They, they may join for those reasons and for the reason that they believe that on balance, we may disagree, but they believe that on balance, the role of American military power is better, it makes the world somewhat better. And they join knowing this is the structure of our military justice system, our military personnel system. They join knowing that they will not have the ability to say, okay, I'll go on that mission, but no, not on course. that mission. Of, of so, course. I'm, not, I'm, not, I'm not suggesting we change the command structure of the military. I'm getting more to the core point, which is these decisions need to be challenged at every way. They need to be challenged in political discourse. They need to be challenged in the media. They need to be challenged by the pool of resources upon which the military depends. And instead of saying, I do this automatically or I do this out of loyalty, people ought to say, why am I doing it? David, let me tell you something scary about this. I think you're totally right. I got an email uh, earlier this week from a guy who had been a platoon leader in Iraq. He said, I didn't understand why we were there. None of my leaders could tell me why, why we were there, what we were doing there, what we hoped to achieve. So he said, I, I made it my objective. My actual only objective in Iraq was to get my guys home without a Purple Heart. I didn't care what that meant. So what he did, here you have a young officer, a lieutenant, basically stopped obeying his orders, stopped doing his job, did not carry out his missions because he did not believe in the war. And that's a failure of leadership. Uh, either he should he and we shouldn't be there, or he should know why he's there. I guess, though, I don't. I mean, David. Of course, it's hard to disagree with with your statement, but it seems to me that we could equally say we ought to live in a world in which all American citizens educate themselves fully about political candidates and issues before they vote, and all Americans ought to vote and take that. And there are lots of things that ought to be the case, but that aren't. There, the question is more, how are there ways that are politically more realistic that we could twiddle with the existing system to make it more responsible? Because you had a very dim view of human nature that you expressed a few minutes ago. Um, and and if that dim view of human nature is right, then your, your suggestion that people ought to do what you think they ought to do is probably Probably not going to happen. No, 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 no. I don't have a dim view of human nature. I, quite the contrary. I think that the, the people um, seek order, embrace the status quo, uh, accept the circumstances largely in which they find themselves, do not want to rock the boat too much, and don't ask the fundamental gating questions about why they do what they do in their lives. What am I seeking in the long term? What is going to give my life meaning? What is the role of government in that? Why do we have a government? What is the role of the military? Why do we have a military? And I, you know, I, you know, it's for a lot of people. It's like, oh, that's philosophical claptrap. But it's asking those questions that leads you to radically rethinking the way that we approach things. And I just, I, I, I think we'd be better off if we did that. And I've driven everybody to silence. <laughs> and that must mean that we've come to the end of this particular podcast. I will try to resuscitate them prior to our next conversation. Thank you all for joining us here at the Editor's Roundtable. 
You have been listening to Foreign Policies, the ER podcast. I'm David Rothkoff, and I've been your host. The program is produced by Maria Ori and Ann Kingston. For more information about FP and to subscribe, please visit foreignpolicy.com. And thank you very much for joining us. ACAST powers the world's best podcasts. Here's a show that we recommend. It is a truth universally acknowledged that it is always the right time to read, talk, and think about Pride and Prejudice. But why is it this book that we universally acknowledge? Why has Pride and Prejudice lasted for over two centuries as the most famous romance novel of all time? This season of Hot and Bothered, award-winning journalist Lauren Sandler and me, Vanessa Zoltan, are looking closely at Pride and Prejudice, interviewing experts and trying to figure out what this book has taught generations of readers about love. Listen to Hot and Bothered wherever you get your podcasts. Acast helps creators launch, grow, and monetize their podcasts everywhere. Acast.com. Acast.com.